This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Michael Docht, it's great to have you here in the living room. Uh, you're an expert on foreign policy, to say the least, having served in both the State Department and the Defense Department and thought about these issues for 30 or 40 years. Right now, the Republican candidates are saying Ronald Reagan knew what the big problem was in the world, which was the Cold War, and he worked to end it. And the Republicans are now saying that Barack Obama doesn't know what the big problem in the world is. That's radical Islamic terrorism. Won't even call it by name, according to Ted Cruz. Is radical Islamic terrorism as big a problem as the Cold War? Well, I don't think it is in the sense that it doesn't pose an existential threat to the existence of this country. It could damage the country a lot because terrorist acts lead to concerns which can produce economic slowdowns and social uh, disruptions, but it couldn't lead to a physical destruction of the country, which uh, several thousand Soviet nuclear warheads could do to the United States. It seems like it's a long-term problem, and of course it's a regional and even global problem emanating from the Middle East, but now spreading uh, to South Asia, Southeast Asia, and targeting Europe as well as the U.S. Well, and in fact, let's follow up, because with the Cold War, one of the concerns for the Soviet Union was that it was reaching out to Asia, to Europe, to Africa, to Latin America. Uh, does terrorism reach out so far and so deeply and so profoundly as Russia did during the Cold War? Well, I think ISIS in particular has a focal point in, in their language about recreating the caliphate, the third caliphate, which would be from roughly North Africa and Spain and Portugal all the way east through the Middle East, South Asia to Southeast Asia. No, but it doesn't include in the first tranche the Western Hemisphere. Is that even a realistic possibility for ISIS right now? I mean, is that something we really have to worry about, or is that just their rhetoric uh, and somewhat exorbitant rhetoric? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty implausible, in part because of their own brutal tactics. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have uh, killed so many Muslims, and even feedback from people who are now under ISIS occupation is so negative that I think it's going to be a tough sell. But it doesn't mean that individuals and small groups and even movements like Boko Haram in sub-Saharan Africa can't be uh, there to cause a lot of trouble, a lot of, a lot of destruction and pain and suffering for people. So what should we do about ISIS? Uh, the Republicans are complaining that more should be done, although a lot of what they've said is really sort of small extensions of what Obama has been doing. Uh, the biggest proponent of really doing something big is Lindsey Graham, who would like to put troops on the ground. Should we go that far? I don't think so, uh, because it is an ISIS objective to engage the U.S. on the ground in Syria and Iraq in leading to what they think will be a grand battle, which will ultimately lead to a new world order with them in control. And I think the U.S. has the obligation to try to enlist the support of the Muslim countries, but it's a very tough sell. In fact, I think the reality is there's very little military support, military support, 
from any Islamic state, including Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, even Turkey. Each one has their own issues in which ISIS is not the top priority. The Turks have the Kurdish problem. The Saudis have Shia problems within Saudi Arabia and the Houthi revolution in Yemen and the rivalry with Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, ISIS is there, but it's not at the top of the list. So what should Obama have done? What should a new president be doing in Syria and in the Middle East in that area? Well, I do think we can be more aggressive in trying to destroy some of their physical facilities, more of their oil fields and the infrastructure around the oil fields. That's very important because that's a major source. Maybe a third or half of their income is from the oil. Would that be in Iraq or in Syria? I think in both both places. And uh, part of the reticence has been that, that ISIS is very adept at encircling all of its assets with civilians. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. has been unwilling to kill innocent civilians. The Russians are not unwilling. The Russians are, it's not a problem for them. But they're not primarily targeting ISIS. They're targeting the opponents of Assad in Syria, who the U.S. has been supporting. And they are largely defeating and destroying those mm-hmm. opponents. The Russian strategy has worked. So, speaking of the Russians, another critique of the Obama administration is that he hasn't been tough enough with Putin. Uh, What do you think we, where where do we stand with Russia right now, and is there a need to get tougher with Putin, or can we just let oil prices do the work? Well, oil prices have definitely damaged their economy tremendously, but, you know, we're in a new situation with Putin that's not the Cold War, and it's not the kind of rapprochement that we had hoped for in the 90s. It's different, and it's quite negative. I think Russia presents a regional power that's, with all of its economic problems, is seeking to expand its influence around its periphery, as they did with Ukraine. Uh, Of course, we have the NATO alliance, but NATO is not willing to take action against Russia, who in turn was acting against a non-NATO state. I think one alarming concern is that in some public opinion polls among NATO members like France and Germany, the population is not interested in supporting a NATO effort if Russia uh, does what it did in Ukraine into one of the Baltic states. And the Baltics are now part of NATO. Wow. And of course, uh, NATO is a collective defense treaty in which if you sign up, and anyone is invaded, then it's as though we're all invaded and we all have a collective responsibility to come to their aid. So some believe that what Putin is actually hoping to do, his sort of grand dream, is produce another very limited, obscure, green men, no army units, uh, you know, kind of vague but purposeful intervention into a Baltic state, particularly Estonia, which is most contiguous to Russia. And NATO does nothing, Mm -hmm. and then that leads ultimately to a political collapse of NATO. This would be a grand dream for Putin. And Estonia has a significant Russian population, 30% of the population. A lot of it, in fact, on the border or near uh, near Russia up there. uh, Yeah, from Tallinn, the capital, to St. Petersburg is just a few hours' drive. Right. This would be a natural for them. On the other hand, it's very risky because it is an attack on NATO. The U.S. will clearly say this is a, you know, this is a war, and it doesn't mean it's going to go away anytime soon. But Where else around the borders of Russia would 
Putin be likely to probe? Would he go into the Central Asian states, do you think, Kazakhstan? I think there like he can do it without, without military action. There's a lot of coercive activity there. And uh, they, they don't quite have the cachet, except for Kazakhstan, which ha- also has a lot of oil. But Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, these are very poor countries. And there's not a lot of, you know, not a lot to be gained there, There, I think. So I think it's more in, in the western uh, periphery of, of Russia that we have to pay attention. And, of course, the Ukraine situation is, is unresolved. I mean, the eastern Ukrainian area has sections that are now totally under Russian control, but other parts of eastern Ukraine are not, and western Ukraine is not. And that's a kind of no-man's land because it's not part of NATO, but it's not allied with Russia. So, uh, you know, that, that, that movie hasn't completed itself yet. So, going from Russia, going a little further to the east, China. Uh, how effective has Obama's China policy been? So China represents still a different uh, challenge. And by the way, this is one of the core differences between this very complicated world and the Cold War world. We had largely one major adversary dominated by a nuclear threat and one containment policy with many uh, applications to deal with it. So some are saying now we need a comparable strategy, but we're we're talking about multiple threats, each of which is very different and has to require sort of different remedies. Let me just stop you. So the major places where there's multiple threats would be Russia, would be China, Iran, North Korea, uh, North Korea, and ISIS, and ISIS, and Al Qaeda off ISIS. Right. Right. affiliated groups like that. Right? Yeah. Those are the five threats, and every one is distinct. They may play ball with each other. North Korea has, uh, has been involved in nuclear assistance to Iran, for example. Mm-hmm. But, um, but those are five distinct threats. Each one requires a somewhat separable series of actions. On China, of course, we're so intimately connected economically, which is completely different than the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, uh, that we have a lot at stake. I mean, they have a lot at stake, too. They hold the other argument, you know, if you owe the bank $1,000, it's your problem. If you, owe them 10 mil- if you owe them $10 million, it's their problem. Mm-hmm. So they're holding a trillion dollars in our uh, treasury bills. And, uh, you know, it's a very complicated economic game. And now that they're suffering economically, and there are some allegations that they have huge bad loans comparable to 07, 08 in the housing market in the U.S., you could see kind of an unraveling of a lot of what they've achieved over the last number of years. Probably that's going to produce an internal problem. That's going to produce political unrest in China as opposed to China asserting itself externally, but you never know. In the meantime, China at the moment is asserting itself very incrementally, externally, in the waters in the south and east China Sea, is reasonably belligerent toward its toward its neighbors, is getting the Japanese and the South Koreans concerned. The Japanese and South Koreans have an infinite appetite to be reassured by the United States. Uh, so we're doing some, but, you know, there's no end to that. It's, it's a process. It's a management of a condition. It's not a problem with a solution. It's going to go, just go on indefinitely, and we have to keep making it clear to the Chinese that this kind of behavior is not acceptable whether they will actually back off a little bit is not not clear. The other thing about China, if I can interject, right. they have had 
developing for quite a while something called an anti-access area denial strategy. So what this is about is that the Chinese in contingency planning, should they decide to make a move against Taiwan or to be even more assertive in the East or South China Sea, their own military planners are anticipating that should they do that, they'd make the first move, the U.S. will respond by surging forces into the Western Pacific, carrier-based aircraft, and so forth. So they do not want the U.S. to intervene in those crises. They want the U.S. to stay out. So what they're doing is they're developing military capabilities, not to emulate our capabilities, but to counter our capabilities. So they have anti-aircraft carrier missiles, especially designed to kill carriers. They're now, uh, you know, testing anti-satellite weapons to disrupt our communication systems. It's all to basically denigrate and, and make much less effective all the capabilities we would need to surge, which they anticipate we do after they make the first. So very, and that's not what the Russians are doing. It's not what ISIS is doing. It's not what North Korea is. It's a different set of problems. Right. And it sounds more like what the Soviet Union used to try to do in terms of our various forces. Exactly, exactly. And so, so now let's go back to Iran, because, of course, that's been the marquee accomplishment or defeat, depending upon right. who you are, of the Obama administration. What's your take on that? So I think in the, in the real world of real choices, as distinct from ideal solutions, this was about the best we could do. Uh, it is a deal which... With sufficient inspection, we can ensure that, that Iran will not have an active nuclear weapons program for perhaps 10 years. It doesn't mean it won't happen in the 11th year, but for 10 years, we'll monitor it carefully with the International Atomic Energy Agency. Assuming they comply, the Iranians comply, it basically postpones a very dangerous problem. It doesn't postpone any of the other problems we have with Iran, which has been a criticism of the agreement. But th those problems were never in the, on the table for this agreement, such as support of Hamas and Hezbollah, such as just generally trying to keep the Middle East in, a, in turmoil, to roll back Saudi and Sunni influence, uh, to support Assad, all of which is counter to American interests. Those are not on the table. We have to deal with those separately. The, one of the things that's behind Iran's influence and uh, uh, central, uh, being a central player in, in the Middle East is that it's a Shiite uh, nation. And one of the things we've learned, I think, since the Iraq War, which maybe we didn't understand before, was the importance of the distinction between Shiites and Sunnis. Right. Uh, do you think people did understand that before the Iraq War and simply we somehow the uh, Bush administration missed it, or did we just learn a lot that, in fact, this is a bigger division than we'd ever imagined? Right. I mean, I think, you know, the Islamic experts and scholars, of course, have known this for since, since Muhammad died, that right. there's been a problem. But, uh, yeah, I'd say most of the policymakers, were, they just didn't consider it that significant. They basically saw Saddam Hussein as a dictator oppressing uh, a population, a Sunni dictator oppressing a largely Shia population in Iraq. And that's why Cheney said, if he's overthrown, we'll be greeted as liberators. Mm. And for a little while, we were, except the problem was that the Shia were as, uh, you know, brutal toward the Sunnis in their own country 
as the Sunnis had been toward them. The, you know, one of the core issues I think we need to treasure even more in this country and in the West is respect for minority rights. Mm-hmm. You know, the minorities have to be allowed to pursue their own lifestyle in every way, customs and habits and food and dress and, and all of that, and religious beliefs. And in that part of the world, it's not. In that part of the world, it's a zero-sum game where the Shiites and the Sunnis have been at odds really since about 60 or 70 years after Muhammad died, when it was not clear what the succession process ought to be. And the Shias felt it should be a descendant directly of Muhammad, and the Sunnis thought it should be selected by the wise men surrounding Muhammad. And this began to lead to a split with totally different interpretations of the Quran. And the majority Sunni, which is almost a billion out of the 1.3 billion Muslims, don't even acknowledge that Shia Islam is a legitimate form of Islam. So the anger and the hatred is huge. It has religious and ideological roots. It has political and geopolitical concerns. After all, now Saudi Arabia and Iran, it's Sunni versus Shia. It's Arab versus Persian, uh, which has a long, long history of rivalry. Different languages. Different different languages, different cultures. It's geopolitical. Two countries right next to each other vying for influence in the region. So it's all of the above. And th- this is really far beyond our sort of pay grade uh, in terms of mental comprehension. I mean, you know, it's just much more c- complex and sophisticated than we had imagined when we got involved. And it's involved. beginning to royal Saudi Arabia as well. I mean, they're having their difficulties Saudi Arabia has this recent execution absolutely. of a Shiite cleric. So they have a, a non-significant Shia min- minority in the eastern part of the country where the oil fields are. And, you know, they themselves, you could claim, are not a fully legitimized regime. I mean, the family of Saud came into power only in the 1930s. So uh, they're always concerned about regime maintenance. That's, in fact, what a lot of these disputes are about. Uh, And they see see Iran uh, provoking Shia minorities in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere as an effort to roll back uh, the Saudis and even threaten the regime. So put this all together now. So we've got Iran, and we've got Russia, and we've got China, and we've got North Korea, and we've got ISIS and and Al-Qaeda and all of that. How how should we even think about foreign policy anymore? Is it possible to have a comprehensive foreign policy, or is it just a piecemeal thing? I think it, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, the president is clearly an individual who is very reticent to use U.S. military force, especially military force on the ground. He doesn't want to commit large numbers of troops. He has learned the lesson of Iraq and even of Afghanistan. Uh, it's not clear that lesson is totally applicable in these countries, but that's the lesson. He's, he's using the historical analogy of Iraq and Afghanistan in applying it to Syria and elsewhere. Well, and the Vietnam War. And, the, and going back to the Vietnam War, which he wasn't, you know, he was born uh, yeah. as it was developing. So. But he's, he's studied it and he knows yeah. about it. So, but that doesn't mean U.S. force is not being used. It's, used. it's being used through special forces, through intelligence, through military action in the air, through drones. After all, President Obama has used many, many more drones than President Bush ever used. So it's selective use of military force, but not the most visible and the politically most charged use of force, which is boots on the ground, which will lead to fatalities, which will lead to body bags coming back, which will lead to political unrest in the United States. He's avoiding that. And the question is, can we use those tools together with allies uh, 
to roll back these threats. And right now, every case, the dealing with the allies, whether it's you know, the NATO in Europe or whether it's the Islamic states in the Middle East, is a hard sell. They're not, they, I think they really believe when, ch- when push comes to shove, the U.S. will do the fighting, and they're not going to do it. As of now, now it might change, uh, but it hasn't. It hasn't changed yet. So it's been much more difficult. So in a sense, our willingness to engage in wars—Vietnam, and then the, the first Gulf War, and then on and on—has given people the impression that, of course, the U.S. ultimately will put boots on the Absolutely. ground. Absolutely. And yet, that means then that we've got to support an enormous military. That's very expensive. And then we have to suffer the terrible consequences of uh, young men and women coming home. That's right. As you say in Right, and a lot of Americans are saying, you know, we have all these problems at home. We have infrastructure problems. We have income inequality. Enough. Let these guys shoot it out themselves. And we should basically pull back. Um, But I'm not sure. I mean, most of the candidates are not are not of that persuasion. Rand Paul, who was a key figure, has not dropped out of the race. Bernie Sanders may be of that persuasion, though he's been very careful not to say too much about foreign policy because he's really first learning about it. Hillary certainly is a much more of an international activist and potentially interventionist. Uh, Cruz allegedly would be, but when you Rubio look at, look, would look, be. Look at the details of Cruz's plan. It's not yeah. like he's committing or talking about committing boots on the ground. Right, Lindsey right. Graham was. But right, that's right. Ted Cruz no, that's is right. Not. That's right. And in fact, Lindsey Graham, that was the, the most clear-cut, articulate advocate of boots on the ground, and he gained no traction in the Republican. So even many of the Republicans are not necessarily interested in land wars in the Middle East. I mean, it seems to me that if you look at the debates, I mean, this is not unusual, but it's not dealing with the issues you've just outlined in the same kind of detail, and that we do need, it'd be nice to think that we could come to some resolution during a presidential election, or at least in a rhetorical level, about what's the right stance that we yeah, should have, yeah. and that does not even seem to be discussed. No, because I, it doesn't get wrapped up in a simple phrase or one right. or two key points three bullet points that you can apply right. across different parts of the world. And, and that makes it, you know, hard. You know, you can't go in front of cameras in a TV presidential debate and say, you know, this is a hard, complicated problem. Right. It has 73 parts. Let me tell you about the first 27 parts. I mean, you can't do that. Right. In a minute, you've got to say, here, is, here are my points. So one says, we'll carpet bomb them. They're just phrases I use, and then they move on to the next issue. And that issue. was uh, Christie, I think, and, about... And, Christie did and, and Cruz did. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, the, I think the bottom line is the day after the presidential election, every one of these problems is going to be there. None of them will have been resolved by, none of them are likely to be resolved anytime soon. And it's about managing them and hopefully avoiding major conflict at the same time. And, and maybe in some cases, the regimes themselves will implode. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Every one of them is a, is a potential... Uh, candidate to be to be at least modified, if not overthrown. If the Russian problem e- economically continues, if China experiences all these issues, the North Koreans, not much is known about Kim mm-hmm. Jong-un's own stability. He's killed allegedly 70, 70 of his top associates. He executed his uncle. He dismissed his defense minister. 
So North Korea is just going to go on and on. Well, but it's, until it, at some point it won't, but yes. it, and then it will surprise us. And we've been expecting the end of that regime for a long time. It hasn't happened. Let me just ask you very briefly. Uh, you helped set up the Cybersecurity Command in the Pentagon while you were there. How big a threat are cyber issues for the United States and for the world? Cyber issues are, are really big. It's a game changer. It's a major new aspect of security that we haven't had to deal with. And the, the main issue is that it can damage a lot of our own critical infrastructure, our pa- electric power grids, our financial systems and networks, our air traffic control systems, even the command and control of our nuclear forces. All are computerized. All are vulnerable to cyber intrusion. So this is, and this is a whole new dimension of warfare. I'm actually involved in some work now and some, so are others called cross-domain deterrence. How do you get you know, what's the role of cyber in space? And it's not just a nuclear game. It's much more complex. Nobody knows if a cyber attack happens. You know, can you respond? How do you respond? Look, we have many cyber intrusions every day, and we have not responded. We're still searching Partly for the way Partly because we to- don't know who did it. And that's right. There's a whole when attribution problem. When Pearl Harbor problem. was bombed, it was pretty clear it was that's the Japanese. That's right. There's a whole attribution problem for cyber attack that is not true with, with nuclear attack. So... We're in the early stages. People say it's 1947 for the cyber world. And it took 10 or 15 years for the Americans to convince itself that we understood nuclear strategy. So we're just starting out with cyber. I think some of the most exciting work you're doing is, in fact, trying to think ahead about new technologies, including cyber warfare, but all sorts of other domains as well, and how we have to make sure that we're aware of how new developments in science and technology could be misused uh, in terms of attacking America or other That's nations. right. I think a very welcome uh, initiative by Defense Secretary Carter was he went out to Stanford and uh, to Silicon Valley, and he said, you know, we have to have a closer relationship with the department because the technological innovation is not happening in Washington in the Defense Department. It's happening in 100 or more companies in Silicon Valley, and they have to, you know, be included in the research and development effort and in, you know, the national security effort. And for a lot of them, they're not, they're not interested. You can't make a buck doing that. It's, it's complicated. You have to deal with all the government red tape to get a contract. You know, they're not interested in all that. They're at warp speed. So the cultures, it's a real cultural mismatch. But it's good news that we're at least trying to Absolutely. figure out how to start bridging that gap Absolutely. so that maybe we will be prepared as new threats. And Carter is a technology-based guy, so he's been aware of this. Others have not been, and we'll see what happens with his successors. So I thank you for your work here. You're a far-seeing person in (laughs) terms of trying to make sure that we're prepared and that we're safe. I thank you, Michael Nacht. Thank you, Henry.